I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Stephen Liptrap. Stephen is the president and chief executive officer of Morneau Chappelle. Uh, Morneau Chappelle is uh, an EAP, or an employee assistance program company. They do a lot of other things and provide a lot of other benefits uh, to workplaces, but that one in particular, EAP, or EFAP, Employee and Family Assistance Programs, uh, have really become an, a, a critical tool, in my opinion, uh, to helping people in their workplaces get connected with help. You know, it's often the the front line, the first place that people can call just when they don't know who else to call, uh, or even managers when they don't know how to help somebody else. So I really enjoyed um, unpacking that service with him more, dispelling some of the myths about it. And and while you know, it's EAPs aren't going to be the one stop shop to do everything for everybody. Uh, I think they're an important part of the system. So uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stephen. He's he educated me a lot on how these how these uh, programs work, and I think that he'll he'll help you understand them better too. So here's my conversation with Stephen Liptrap, the president and CEO of Morneau Chappelle on So-Called Normal. Before we get into the the wonderful world of EAP and of, of Morneau, uh, Morneau Chappelle and all that you offer, uh, tell me about yourself. Uh, terrific. So I actually thought I wanted to be an accountant my whole life. I uh, went to Western's Business School, I graduated, and what I found is I quickly went into businesses and running those businesses, but I was really pulled into the human aspect Mm -hmm. and worked for a retail company, then a high-tech company, and through that got pulled into human resources. Okay, And it was really about the ability to have a bigger impact on where companies are going by focusing on people than necessarily the numbers. So spent 20-something years in HR, joined Morneau Chappelle about 11 years ago, started actually in HR Mm -hmm. about how do we put Morneau and Chappelle together and create Mm. an integrated organization doing well, and then had the privilege to move over and lead our EAP business for about seven years and then moved into this role about three years ago. Right. I, I forgot about this, actually, because it wasn't all that long ago that Morneau was a separate company, Chappelle was a separate company, and I think there were a few other brand names and letterheads out there at some point, too. So tell me about those two, since you are now Morneau Chappelle. What were those two companies separately, and what are they now together? Yeah, it came together about 2008, 2009, and Morneau Sebeco, right. back in those days, was really about pension and benefits. It was about not only about consulting and pension benefits, but administering those plans. So going into organizations and running very complicated pension benefit programs and taking them over and doing it more efficiently and with a higher level of service than organizations could themselves. Mm -hmm. And Chappelle FGI, which was the other side, was really about both disability management and employee assistance. And we had a belief that putting those two together created a more wholesome HR offering. We could do a lot more for our clients as a result of those two businesses being together. So it's interesting to me that you moved from uh, the exciting world of accounting uh, into human resources, which is, which is much less finite, I would imagine. You know what? So what, what drew you into the, 
uh, complexity, I guess, of the human experience. Yeah, to me, it was really early on, and I had an opportunity to go into HR on a project basis. Okay. And it was really around, you know, how do we make the, it was a retail environment at the time, and how do we make all of those retail employees far more effective? So mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to create a training program about how you work with customers. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to help managers think through how do they better motivate their people? How do they get more out of their folks? And also had an opportunity company-wide to introduce a suggestion program Mm -hmm. where we could really pull up the great ideas coming from frontline staff Mm -hmm. and then implement that across the whole chain. And I just really saw the power that if you had an engaged workforce that was really bought into the purpose and what you were trying to achieve, Mm -hmm. you could do so much more than just focusing on the numbers and being a little bit better on the balance sheet here and there or something like that. Sure. I have I've had the um, privilege of guest lecturing a number of times at the George Brown um, Human Resources Program, and one of the things that I've noticed, you know, in, in consulting and speaking with groups of people who have been in HR for a very long time, versus going in and talking to young people uh, often who are, are just joining the field, is that there seems to be a generational divide in human resources. I mean, you're much more embedded in this field than I am. Is this something you've noticed as well? Yeah, I think HR has changed a lot over the years, and I think it's gone from you know, 30 or 40 years ago, which was about payroll and maybe recruiting. So Mm -hmm. how do I pay people properly? How do I make sure it's accurate? And how do I hire new people? And I think what we realize today is just the power if you're able to get it right and if you're able to create the purpose for an organization, Mm. if you're able to engage the employees, if you're able to have each employee give a little bit more, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt and all the data will tell you that organizations with better engagement have far better business results. And I think the other one, as I look back on it, is there's no doubt that we were in a war for talent before. Mm. We are right back into that war for talent. If we think about in Canada alone, there's 1,100 people turning 65 every single day. Every day. (laughs) Every single day. So you think of the power, maybe they're not retiring at 65, but there's 1,100 that are going to be retiring every single day in the very near future. And no matter what we do, there are not going to be, we can do anything with robots, we can do anything with AI, but we're going to be short on talent. And we've just got to figure out how do we keep talent in the organization? How do we keep it in the workforce? Um, How do we get more people into the Canadian workforce in general? And for each organization, how do I make sure I keep my great people? How do I make sure I attract people? And how do I make sure that they want to give the most and be a part of my organization? I think that will be the thing that makes organizations successful going forward. Now, I wasn't planning to, and and I'm still not planning to make this a war on generations here, but since you mentioned it and and it was my last question, uh, I'm still thinking about it. Have you noticed uh, managers in particular uh, who are uh, not millennials or younger, who are older, elder millennials and older, uh, are they having difficulty engaging with millennials and younger in their workplaces? It's a really good question. We've done a lot of research across intergenerations and really looking at different generations in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is very typical of what's taken place all through time. You have some managers who are really good at it and some managers who are Mm -hmm. not good at it. Mm -hmm. And whether it's trying to, and generations are very different as well, but if you think about what millennials are working for, and I would argue every generation, you know, give me some freedom. Tell me what you want me to do. Don't tell me how to do it. Right. Tell me what you want. Um, let me be in a little bit of control around how I get there. Let me be in control of my hours. Mm -hmm. And you put all that together, and I would argue, I think every generation really wants it. I think 
millennials, Gen Z, Gen Y are just better at putting it as a priority. And mm -hmm. I would argue baby boomers like myself maybe didn't put those things as much of a priority as today's generation does. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's really good. A few years ago, the Mental Health Commission of Canada and the Canadian Standards Association released the first national standard for psychological health and safety in the workplace, which some of your people were, were quite deeply involved with, of course. Um, and one of those uh, 13 factors that are, or well, depending on who you ask, there's a number of different factors, but in the official document, I think it's 13, uh, is clear leadership and expectations. So suggesting what, what you're talking about. And it doesn't seem all that surprising, or at least it shouldn't seem all that surprising, that people need to know what they're what's expected of them in the workplace. Yet it does seem relatively uncommon. And, and maybe it's because managers, like you say, are there's a, there's a variety of different reasons that managers become managers. It's not always because they've gone through the most rigorous training program on how to lead people. Um, so how are you encountering that with the, the managers that you're working with in particular when they come, probably come from a wide variety of backgrounds in terms of how they actually lead people and, and how they became a manager in the first place. How are you bringing them along and showing them the light? Yeah, a couple of thoughts come to mind. I think the first one is it's got to start at the top. Mm. I think if you did not have a CEO who regularly is get, getting out in front of the organization talking about where we're going, what's our strategy, what's the path we're on, taking those objectives, setting them for their direct reports and cascading that down through the organization, mm. then it's really hard to have managers try and come up with their own objectives. They can have some, mm. but we've got to all be rowing in the same direction. So I think it does have to come from the top and I think it does have to cascade right. down through the organization. And that means expectations for the managers too. It's not just expectations for the rank and file employees. Absolutely. And I think it's got to cascade, it's got to come down. And then I think if managers then can take it and set really clear objectives for their staff mm -hmm. and then engage their staff on, you know, if this is the thing that we need to achieve, what are the priorities that you think we need to do to actually get there? Mm -hmm. And then I think you've got to be able to measure against it. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing we've seen, Mark, and this came up when I was in uh, Ottawa last week, uh, meeting with a lot of government bodies, is there are just not as many training dollars going around as there were before. Mm. There are not as many organizations sitting back and putting new managers through two, three, four, six-week training programs. That doesn't exist anymore. So one of the interesting things we've done is actually create a manager consult line. So when we mm. go into an organization, we have a separate line where managers can pick up the phone, reach out to us and get help. Mm -hmm. And you think about if you're a new manager, you have an employee in your office, say they have a significant issue with a coworker, they're in there, they're crying, they're not sure how to deal with the situation. The last thing I wanna do as a new manager is actually go to my boss and say, I don't know how to do this. Right. But I'm more than happy to pick up a phone, talk to someone confidentially, get some advice on how to deal with it. So we're seeing a lot more of those type of things take hold. And I think it also ties into um, on-demand learning that people are expecting today rather than put me into a four-week course and right. then maybe I'll use that two years later. Right. I think having those things available online through a phone or being able to download a quick video and watch it in short little snaps yeah. is probably a lot better. Sure. And I mean, people like to be able to, I think, check off the box by going to their first aid course or mental health first aid course or whatever it is. But is it actually making a difference, right? Are we, uh, as, as Heather Stewart out of Queens says, are we, are we moving from changing attitudes into actually changing behaviors? Great. You can educate people, but does it actually move the needle in any way? And, and uh, I think we're starting to see this with uh, how managers help people 
people with mental health struggles in the workplace as well. Are you noticing this from the types of calls? It sounds like it's still a new service, manager calls, but are you noticing this in the types of calls that you're getting from managers that, that they're able to help their, their employees more confidently? Yeah, I think two things. One is we roll that out. There's no doubt that it's fairly heavily utilized, which mm-hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. The second thing is there's no doubt that the vast majority of calls that come in are helping people deal with either coworkers or situations at home. So they're right. all human elements. It's not technical. Yeah, Where people get stuck when they move into new manager jobs is really around how do they deal with, could be peers, mm-hmm. could be employees, um, could be their own manager, or it could be some difficult situations at home. So right. we're seeing it really across that whole broad cross-section. And this is so interesting because I think sometimes either new managers or scared managers, <laughs> and there's a lot of overlap often there. The same. <laughs> yeah, they often are the same. But um, so often when we don't know what to do, we want to just um, zoom in on the, the uh, uh, procedure, whatever that might be. We just want somebody to tell us the steps. And it's obviously way more complicated than that. It almost always is, especially if you're trying to help somebody who's vulnerable. Uh, and one of those things seems to be a, a, a a lot of discomfort that managers have around people's personal lives, right? That's their own stuff. They shouldn't be bringing it to work. I'm one of those people who doesn't think there really is any such thing as a work-life balance, not in the same way as as people are, or not in the way of, of separating those two things. So how do managers then deal with people's personal stuff that's got nothing to do with their work? Yeah, the first uh, comment I would make is I'm on exactly the same page around work-life balance. Mm. Uh, someone many, many years ago who was a corporate psychologist once explained to me, if you try and ask people to get work-life balance is like a teeter-totter. You can never be perfectly balanced. Whereas in reality, if you ask people to be integrated between their work and life, it becomes far more powerful. So Mm -hmm. it's okay for you to maybe come in a little bit later and, you know, deal with that person coming to your house. Uh, But there's going to be other times that you need to put more into work or it's okay on it's what you get done, not where you get it done. So I think... I'm totally with you. I think if we're always trying to achieve work-life balance, we're chasing something we're never going to be able to do. Right, and we're siloing our own lives. Absolutely. And they're not siloed, right? There's nothing wrong with maybe picking up a call on a weekend because it's important, but there's also maybe nothing wrong with doing something personal in the middle of the day and it's more effective. Right. So I do think it's far more important to get them integrated between the two. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about the types of uh, mental health challenges in particular that uh, employees might face and managers for that matter, because I don't think we ever really talk about managers who might struggle with their mental health, but... Um, what kinds of things are, do you think, causing people to disengage uh, in the workplace? Uh, you know, mental health, related to their mental health or not, uh, you're, you mentioned engagement a number of times as being a, a primary focus. So what's causing people to disengage at work? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. So the first one I would say is uh, we really like to think about it in terms of total health. Mm-hmm. And when we say total health, we think about mental health, physical health, financial health and social health. Mm. And I think the reality is all of those are interrelated. So you think about someone carrying around a tremendous amount of debt that can have significant mental health issues. Mm. I quite often will talk to doctors who tell me that 50% of their patients are coming to them for a physical ailment, mm. but that physical ailment is caused by, could be mental health, could be financial health, could be right. social health. So right. I do think you know, we do need to approach total health because I think they're very interrelated. Second thing I would say is we like to think about it in terms of a continuum of care. And I think about that continuum as going from something as simple as people feeling isolated, not feeling part of something Mm -hmm. and what that can lead to. And that 
if we're able to help people around recognition, we're able to help them feel part of something, we're help, happen to be able to help them around isolationism. Mm-hmm. And then you move up that continuum of care to things that people express on a regular basis that cause stress and anxiety. It could be elder care issues, it could be child care issues. There's no doubt that this is a sandwich generation where people are having to deal with elder care and child care at the same time, mm, which is really difficult. Yeah. To you move further up that continuum of care and you have issues that you can deal with through things like ICBT, Internet Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Mm-hmm. So let me do some things online that I'm able to get help with psychologists in the background. You continue to move up to that continuum of care and you go through people missing work, feeling stressed, feeling anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then the far end of that would be people who are thinking about taking their own lives and how do we help them with that? Mm -hmm. And I really think about organizations need to think about their employees on that journey and make sure they've got a suite of solutions to help people at whatever stage they are. And you offer that kind of suite of solutions. I mean, one of the main reasons that I want to talk to you today was about EAPs, um, employee assistance programs or employee and family assistance programs, although most, I think, cover families as well. First of all, tell me a bit about, for those who are listening, who for some reason uh, don't know, because if they're listening to this episode and you're on it, presumably they know who you are, but not always. Tell me about what an EAP is and, and how it operates or how you operate it. Yeah, and I must admit, I prefer EFAP. And the reason I really come back to it is I think every single time we talk to our families or we put up a poster or we download an app, every single time someone sees a family element of that, Mm. it reminds them that these services are provided to families at no extra charge. Mm -hmm. And you think about, there's no doubt in my mind that families represent half of the people we should be seeing and only 10% of the people that come to us for help every year Mm. are family members. So I don't think we're getting to as many people as we should be helping on the family side. Sure. But what a employee and family assistance program or EAP as they're commonly called is really about is it started back in the 60s and it was really about helping people with alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. It was providing an independent, third party, safe, confidential place Mm -hmm. for someone to go because there's no way that someone who had an alcohol addiction in the workplace back in the 60s would go to their employer and say, I've got an alcohol addiction. So these services were really about how do I help people? They've evolved tremendously in the last 30 or 40 years. And today, an employee and family assistance program will span the globe all the way from helping people with childcare issues, helping with elder care, helping with stress, helping with anxiety, Mm -hmm. could be financial planning, could be getting legal assistance, all the way up to people who are suffering stress, anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression. They're 100% confidential. And where we've taken them actually in the last couple of years is starting to evolve to a common platform that employees can go to and on that platform have the ability to recognize others. We're starting to deal with loneliness. We're starting to deal with isolation. Um, We're having a lot more self-help tools where people are able to get some help online and then maybe see a counselor later. Mm -hmm. We're able to launch 24-7 chat with a counselor, Mm -hmm. which is really about no matter what, you're able to pick up your phone instantly and chat with someone. You might not want to pick up the phone and talk to someone live and say the three hardest words in the English language, I need help. Mm -hmm. But you know what, if I chat with someone a little bit, establish a little bit of a rapport, And maybe I go to see them two, three, four days later Mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So they really have evolved. And what's 
probably the most incredible thing to me is we've moved from programs that four or five percent of an organization would use to regularly we have clients where 20, 30, 40, 50 percent of their employees are coming to us for help every year. Wow. And for a program that costs almost nothing in the whole benefit scheme of things, mm-hmm. if we're able to help people, if we're able to keep them engaged, if we're able to have them passionate and productive at work, mm-hmm. or if we're able to get them back to work mm-hmm. when they're already off, those things have an ROI that just pays for itself in a split second. I'm surprised to hear you say that you know companies with 30, 40, 50% of their employees in any given year, you, you've experienced this, you have clients who have had half their workforce call you? Yeah, I'll give you two examples. So there was a large telco that we work with. And as soon as their senior management realized that they needed to lead by example, and they said to their employees, it's okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. We saw the utilization of that telco go from 10% to 30% and has been consistently 30 to 40% every single year. Wow. And they're really about you know what, people are suffering mental health issues. People are having challenges with, um, you know, peers at work. People are having challenges at home and it's okay to get help. And they quickly realize that if we're able to get to people very early on mm-hmm. and get them back to work, they're better off. And I'll tell you a quick example from our own experience. When we put Morno and Chappelle together, Morno was a human resources company and they used Chappelle for their own EAP. Mm-hmm. And their own EAP was getting about 14% utilization. Right. So that means 14% of the workforce was coming to help every year yeah. and on that's, average. that's typically what I hear from, from a lot of companies is about that. Yeah, number. we've moved it from 7% of our book kind of 10 years ago to 14 through introducing new modalities, through mm-hmm. video counseling, through um, doing things online, through telephonic counseling and things like that. So mm-hmm. technology has definitely moved it up. But you're right, the average is about 14% now. So Morno back then was 14%. Chappelle, interestingly enough, was actually 50%. Hmm. And it wasn't drug or alcohol addiction, Hmm. but it was really about helping people with childcare issues, helping people um, find camps for kids and different things like that. Mm -hmm. So as soon as Morno and Chappelle came together, what we found was the Morno folks were saying, oh, what is this thing we bought? (laughs) And the Chappelle folks were saying, hey, did you know you could use this for naturopath? Did you know that you can use this for a nutritionist? And people got interested. And what we found is, this was 10 years ago, in our own organization, every single year, we have been between 50 and 60% for the last 10 years. And it was helping people in those other areas. So that's why I have a fundamental belief that people out there do need this help. Yeah. And we can make a real difference by providing now this, it. especially for some managers and executives and, and others that might scare them on its face to hear, oh, my God, half of my workforce is calling for help of some kind. Why is that not actually scary? <laughs> Why well, is that not a bad thing? Well, you think about what employees come to us for. Right. And yes, we have the extremes around anxiety and stress and depression. But if you think about the vast majority of what people come to us, you know, they're dealing with a coworker. Mm-hmm. Isn't that good if they can get some help and advice on how to do that? They're dealing with issues at home. It could be with their teenagers, could be with their spouse. Isn't it good that we're able mm-hmm. to help them deal with those issues quickly? Because we all know that if we're sitting at work and we've got a very stressful situation at home, um, our kids are in university and they're suffering depression, mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to focus at work. And if I'm able to work with a counselor and to eliminate those stresses, 
I'm going to be way more productive at work. Right. It could be people who think about we're coming up to the holidays, right? Coming through the holidays and I spend too much mm-hmm. and I've got significant debt if I could help them with those things. So it really is about helping people very proactively so mm-hmm. that they can be far more productive at work. Mm-hmm. And if we're able to get in front of it, it's far better than dealing with it later when it's become serious. And you think about, you know, we all run fairly tight around number of people at work and all of that. Mm-hmm. And each person that we're missing has a significant impact, not only on how we get work done, but on everyone else's stress within yeah. the workplace as well. Now, are you seeing the evidence to support this as well, that these companies that are getting up to 30, 40, 50 percent of, of their workforce accessing support early support services, is that investment paying off for those companies? Yeah, and we've got a number of clients who publicly have gone out and said that the ROI is phenomenal just around how they're able to reduce disability, how they're able to reduce people off. Now, measuring people at work and would they have gone off is way more difficult. Sure. Yeah. But just from getting people back to work and dealing with that alone, the ROI is tremendous. And we've got clients who go out there and are very, very open around that. Mm-hmm. And Many of them have said we've reduced the disability cost by 20 or 30 percent as a result of rolling out effective programs that are utilized. Yeah. Now, I think I've read before it it might have been when uh, Bell Canada possibly released their the interim results uh, of their their implementation of the national standard. And I think they had said at that time, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it didn't reduce the number of disability claims, but it reduced the length of time of disability claims. Was that was that accurate? Yeah, I can't remember that exactly, right. but many times um, Bell and other organizations like that have talked about the significant decrease in the length of absence. Right. So you're exactly right. right. And I imagine there are a number of other measures. You know, your your engagement, which which is part of your core focus, is probably a lot better if people feel supported as well, right? Yeah, and the other thing we found recently as we've started rolling out more of a broad-based platform and getting at recognition to impact isolation Mm -hmm. and everything else Mm -hmm. in the workplace is not only has EAPs had a huge impact on engagement, but now we're able to actually start impacting engagement from a recognition standpoint. Mm. And you think about the number one thing that I've seen in all my life in HR show up on every engagement survey, or at least as top three, Mm -hmm. is recognition. And it's not about getting more money. It's about, you know, managers or peers saying thank you. Right. And that's disappeared a little bit from society. And if we're able to create platforms where you can do that, it's absolutely incredible. And I know as we've rolled the platform out to our own employees, if you want to feel good about our organization, you Mm. pick it up and you read about people around the world, because we operate in 162 countries, people around the world, I can read about Someone this weekend came in and did an amazing job in Australia uh, and helped out a client Mm. and everyone else reading about that. And then that person getting recognition for giving up part of their weekend to help that client out is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Now, have you, that's a good point, actually. Have you noticed this since you work in in so many countries and therefore cultures? um, Are there core things that that people respond to in terms of improving their engagement, their health, their connection with their workplace across cultures? Yeah, it's really interesting because culture has a huge impact on it. And the first thing I would say is, if you think about Canada, US, UK, or Australia, Mm. about 75% of organizations have an employee and family assistance program in place. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world is between 5 and 15%. Really? So what causes that, do you think? I think it really is cultural. Mm. I think about, if we think about 
um, what's happening in China today, or if you think about what's happening in India, quite often it'd be, if you need help with these issues, what would you do? You'd go to family. Mm. What we find is when I'm in China or when I'm in India and we're talking to our clients, the employee's biggest issues these days is quite often, what do I do with the family? Right. And what do I do with arranged marriages and all of these things and needing to have help. So what we're finding is all of those countries we're seeing EAP adoptions increase by 20, 30% every single year. Yeah. And there's no doubt in my mind, I can't tell you when, but there is no doubt in my mind that the whole world will be at 75% adoption sure. because no matter where you are, people need help in these areas. So have you taken your learnings from non-Western countries, or at least outside of the countries that you mentioned, uh, and brought them back to you know places like Toronto, which are incredibly multicultural, or, or really many urban centers across North America? Have you taken those learnings from elsewhere where you operate and applied them here too? Uh, we have, and I'll give you uh, one quick example. So if you think about in Canada, 75% of people that we see who want counseling and want help are seeing someone face-to-face still. So even Mm -hmm. though we've rolled out phenomenal modalities or ways of getting help around video and telephonic and chat and all of these other things, 75% is still face-to-face. What we found in Japan is 95% was telephonic. Interesting. So what we found is the last thing someone, people in Japan wanted help Mm -hmm. and they didn't mind reaching out and asking for help, but the last thing they wanted to do was be seen walking in to a psychologist or a corporate counselor's office. Mm -hmm. And it was about saving face. Mm -hmm. So we were able to take our amazing learnings that we had in Japan where we were really good at telephonic counseling Mm -hmm. and improve our telephonic counseling here, bring some of those things back. Um, In India, what we find is the vast majority of the counseling we provide is actually video. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really around, if you try and get around Delhi or Mumbai, it's impossible. Right. <laughs> so we become really good at video counseling. Yeah. But what we've also found is because of the importance of data and where you keep that data, we've created our own solutions. We're not using Skype and we're not using FaceTime because nobody wants their data sitting on uh, servers sitting down in another country. People want it within the countries that we operate in. So we've created our own proprietary system to allow that. So a lot of things come into it, but I think there's tremendous learnings that we've taken. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I was in um, Australia a few weeks ago and we're meeting with some number of government bodies and they were so interested in talking to us because they are in the middle of adopting the Canadian psychological standards. Mm -hmm. Because they see Canada as leaders Mm -hmm. on psychological standards. And it was great as a Canadian to say, yeah, we were part of helping write those and let us talk to you about how you can implement them in Australia. That's extraordinary to be, to be, I tell people this all the time, you know, one of the most exciting things for me as a mental health advocate and, and speaker is that people have thought the same old way about mental health and mental illness for all of human history. And it's just right now that we're on the crest of the wave that things are changing and changing in really important ways, like in, in how we, uh, how we treat people at work, which I think is significant. Well, and credit to you, Mark, as well, and others who are getting the message out there, Mm because I do think we've crossed a threshold where stigma is disappearing. Mm -hmm. And I think people are willing to talk about mental health issues in a way that they never have before. And I think people are willing to ask for help in a way that they never Mm -hmm. have before. And I think that's through a lot of corporations that are out there. I think that's through a lot of celebrities 
mm-hmm. that are talking about their own mental health challenges. And I think it's people like you doing podcasts like this where we can really get mm-hmm. the message out there. I think we've certainly come a long way in awareness in the last even just 10 years or so. I'm less confident when you see how broken the system is sometimes, the formal system, which still isn't meeting the needs, uh, isn't receiving the kinds of investment that it needs uh, in order to keep pace. But, you know, I, I think that one of the risks of, of telling people, uh, and it's always been treated as a risk, to reach out all the time is that they do. And if there's nobody to reach back, if there's nobody there to actually give them the help, then sometimes that can be a lot worse for them, right? So tell me about the journey that somebody takes when they call their EAP or when they reach out for help to a, to a company like you, which you know, 75% of people who have a, a job in Canada probably have access to a, you or someone like you. So what's that journey like when somebody makes that phone call? And as a quick reminder, their family members do too. And their family members, right. Exactly. It's amazing. So if you came to me 10 years ago, the only way you could get to us was you probably walked around your workplace, you saw probably saw a poster on the wall, mm-hmm. or you went to the HR department and said, um, I need the AP number, but it's not for me, it's for my friend George, honestly. Right. And we know how well that works, right? Yeah. And then you'd pick up the phone, you would talk to someone, and we would book you an appointment, depending on the severity, from immediately to within five days, and you would go see a counselor face-to-face. That has 100% changed. Mm. So today, you essentially can come to us through chatting with a counselor, booking an appointment online, looking something up online, downloading our app, and you know, for free, no charge at all, being able to watch videos on it. Mm-hmm. And you can come to us from all those different sources. Mm. Once you come to us, we spend a lot of time, we do on average a seven to nine minute intake. Mm-hmm. And it really is making sure that, you know, we fully understand the issue. Cause quite often people will come to us for one issue, but it's really an underlying sure. issue that's causing the bigger issue. Yeah. We will then spend a lot of time with the person to figure out what's the best way to help them. And as I mentioned, that help quite often is seeing someone for help face to face. Mm -hmm. It can be through going through a self-learning where I prefer to do modules on my own and maybe have a counselor in the background. Mm -hmm. It can be through telephonic counseling because I don't, I more easily talk to someone through the telephone than I do if I'm looking at them face to face. Mm -hmm. Or believe it or not, we have email counseling, which sounds really old fashioned, but the guy who runs his business described it to me as the lost art of letter writing. Mm. So what it means is we know that 10% of the population does not want to sit in front of someone Mm -hmm. and tell them their problems. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to think about it. They want to be able to craft their response. They want to be able to send it. They want the person at the other end to take 24 hours to think about it Mm -hmm. and come back. And they want to have a record that they can go back and read. So 10% of our cases are through old-fashioned email counseling, believe it or not. So then you come to us for help. And depending on the severity, we might solve the problem in two, three, four sessions. It might be eight, nine, 10, 12 sessions. Um, And is there a limit on the number of sessions? Yeah, EAPs tend to be focused at short to medium term. Mm -hmm. So you tend to want to wrap them up in 10, 12 sessions. But if something needs to go longer, it will. Uh, What we find quite often, though, is we've got other solutions for organizations where we get into um, programs like depression care Mm -hmm. or ICBT, Internet Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Mm -hmm. But you start getting into something that's a little bit more long term. And those tend to be different programs that we're And often that's when it'll pass into extended health benefits and things like that. 
that nature too. Yeah, and we're very connected into the insurance providers in Canada. Mm -hmm. And when someone moves beyond a short-term EAP, we're able to start leveraging some of the benefits, uh, getting them some of the other help as well. We do a lot of work with organizations like CAMH, obviously, where Mm we uh, can leverage that, and a lot with other institutions that can help people as well. So we're very connected and we've got, you walk through one of our care access centers and you'd be blown away by talking to these people because every single day they wake up and they come to work and just about helping people. Mm. And that's all they do. And every single person that comes in, all they do is want to make sure that they get the right help and support at the other end. How do you help and support those people, the ones who are taking the calls? Yeah, it's a wonderful question and um, one that I'm always challenging how do we continue to do a better job at it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, believe it or not, for providing our own EAP. And as I mentioned, our utilization is consistently over 50%. Mm -hmm. So I think people trust that it's 100% confidential. They get the help. They get the support. Um, It's around the platform that we just rolled out, which is around people giving each other recognition, people having a platform where they can go out and ask for help and ask for support Mm. and do some of those things as well. I do think every manager's job is to remove roadblocks and to listen. And we try and spend a lot of time coaching our managers on better listening skills. I think we can all be far better listeners. Mm. But as I said, even though I think we do a very good job around all that, I think we can always do more. And we need to continuously take that up to a whole new level. We've mentioned several of the barriers, I think, already that people face when accessing any kind of help when reaching out for help. You know, stigma is certainly a a big one. Um, If they don't want to go to their HR person to ask for the little card or the poster or the phone number, whatever it is, or they don't want to admit that they need help, or maybe they don't even know that they need help. Often people don't think that these services or don't realize that these services are confidential. Um, It seems to be that there's a fear that uh, an EAP will report back in some capacity to their employer. That's not the case, though, is it? No, and I mean, we've got 30, 40 years of evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, EAPs are massively trusted. People realize that they are fully confidential. The people, the counselors um, have a code of ethics that they can't break anyhow. It's around confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Any reporting back to an organization is only at an enterprise level. So you would know, for example, 20% of the calls we got were for stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's Mm -hmm. all you find out. So I think there's a lot of that out there. And I think for the most part in, as I mentioned, North America, UK and Australia, I think these programs have been around long enough that we've got through that barrier. Mm. I think as we look at rolling out programs in other countries around the world, that is more of a question because we're having to take people back to what I think we've already done in North America Mm -hmm. 20 years ago around confidentiality and some of that. But just know that the people at the other end, not only do we have rules and everything else in place from a corporation, but, you know, they're bound by the colleges that they're part of as well around providing confidential support. Now, what's the training of the people who are taking the calls typically? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible when you think about people operating in what we would call a care access center Mm -hmm. or a call center that 
you know, at a minimum, they have bachelor's degrees. Most of them have master's degrees. They all have five to 10 years of experience. So mm. it's absolutely amazing when you think about that ex- amount of experience. In counseling so, or in a variety of? Uh, it could be a counseling, but there could be other things as well. So okay. if you think about people come to us for elder care. Right, right. So we would have people who are experts in elder care. People come to us, you know, from a particular religion. So we will have on staff, it could be a priest or it could be folks from different religions as well. Because So it sometimes is counseling, but mm-hmm. we do need expertise uh, much broader than that as well. Interesting. So, um, you know, I, I think that there still is a, a, a large portion of that stigma barrier uh, in place. You know, sometimes the types of interventions we suggest for people aren't acceptable to that person. So how do you help people to, you know, it, it's, I'm trying to wrap my, ra- my mind around how in, say, six sessions or 10 sessions or 12 sessions by phone or email or virtual – how you can really understand the complexity of what's going on with a person and then get them to buy into the solution, right? So what are, the, what are the outcomes like for people who are calling? Are you actually helping to solve their problems? Yeah, and a couple things come to mind. So the first is uh, there's probably nothing I enjoy more than going into our care access center and, you know, just listening to some calls sometimes. Mm. And it is amazing around the issues that people are facing and how good our people are at dealing with those. And if you think about any type of short-term therapy, and if you get into the specifics around cognitive behavioral therapy, it really is about listening. It really is about understanding what those issues are and then putting in a place and helping people get through those issues quickly. And there probably isn't a week that goes by that someone doesn't come up to me and they tell me a story about them using our services for them or their family and how we're able to make a difference. And quite often that's in two or three sessions. Quite often it's in six sessions and it might be something dealing with an elderly parent where we're able to get them into, you know, what type of home should they be looking for? What type of support should they be looking for? Mm. And those would be shorter it could be dealing with a coworker at work and we're able to give people strategies around that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Or it could be something much more severe. The other one that strikes me a little bit, Mark, though, is we made a decision a number of years ago that when there was a disaster in the world mm. and an event occurred that we would make our folks available at no cost to that community. And we've done it with the wildfires in California. We've done it with the fires that took place in Slave Lake in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done it with the shooting down in Las Vegas. We've done it with a number of, unfortunately, there's so many disasters yeah. that take place around the world, the recent hurricanes in the last year. And what we find is we open up our lines for people in those communities and they use it. Mm. So when you talk about reducing the stigma You know, people just, when they're, all we do is put out our phone number, we make sure that people know, and we've got people using it on a regular basis. So I, I know there's always people who have some hesitation about using services and confidential, but it does tell me when people are at a moment of stress that they do want help and that they're willing to reach out and ask for help. And back to your earlier point about millennials and generations, there is no doubt, and we see this through utilization of our services, Mm. that newer generations are much, much more willing to ask for help than Mm. any other generation in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, 
This is only my own theory. But if you look at today's generations, they were out there with their feelings on social media mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And that didn't exist in my day. Mm-hmm. So I think that translates over to the workforce. Sure. And not only are they way more willing to ask for help, but they're also way more willing to take advice yeah. um, than any other generation. So that makes me feel really good yeah. that we're able to help today's generation going forward. So how do you see that changing the workforce then as managers and executives, uh, people leaders are, are increasingly of a millennial generation? These people who have, uh, you know, at least a slightly different worldview, sometimes a drastically different worldview, especially in terms of how they ask for and and receive help. How is this changing workplaces? Yeah, I think it's fantastic because I think the managers of the future Mm. are going to be really, really good at reaching outside and asking for help. And Mm. I think many years ago, you know, when we became managers, I'll put myself in that camp. You thought you had to have all the solutions. Right. And today what I find is a lot of the young people taking over managerial supervisory roles for the first time are more than open to saying, hey, I don't know the answer. They're willing to talk to their colleagues. They're willing to pick up the phone, talk to us, Mm. but they're really willing to say, Hey, you know what? I don't have all the answers is about getting the right solution for this person Mm -hmm. rather than me feeling like, Oh, you put me in this position. I better have all the answers. So that gives me a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for the future and Mm. that workplaces are going to continue to be better places. Do you think that, and I've said this to people before about whether it's the national standard for psych health and safety or just focusing on mental health and safety, psychological health and safety in the workplace in whatever manner, I think that that's going to ultimately provide a competitive advantage for companies who do that versus who don't, who, who try to resist that wave of actually supporting their employees. Are you seeing this uh, as well in, in the companies that you work with, with the data? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's the right thing to do, sure, to support your employees, but is it the right business thing to do as well? It is. And I spend a lot of time, as you can imagine, with a lot of CEOs of mm. Canadian organizations. And I would say easily 90% of those CEOs, and you would know any one of those organizations, have employee well-being and have mental health top of their list. Mm. I think we all recognize and we all realize that if we do not have a workforce that is resilient, that um, is engaging, there's no way we're going to be right. successful. And there's enough data well, and, in the and, past that would say that. And I think that there's no way that those companies specifically will be successful. It seems like just through attrition uh, in the competitive marketplace, if you're not supporting your employees, if you're not retaining them, if they're sick, if they're leaving, you're not going to be innovative. You're not going to be able to stay ahead. I mean, that's what it seems like from my point of the mountain. And if you think about attracting people today, you've got the questions that people are asking when they come in in interviews now. Mm-hmm are way different than what they were before. They're asking a lot more around purpose. Right. They're asking a lot more around what does the organization do around um, social network? They're asking a lot more around support for employees. They're asking about recognition programs. They're asking about uh, flexibility in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I first came out of university and was applying for a job, I wouldn't think about asking about those things. It'd be, okay, it's a two-week vacation policy and I don't get any of that until after a year. Okay. And that's not the case today. Today really is about, I'm going to be really choiceful and I have a choice. Because other people are going to offer me. Absolutely. And I'm going to give you everything I've got when I go to work for you. Mm -hmm. But I also want to make sure that I'm going to work for an organization that actually cares about the world cares about making a difference and has a wonderful purpose that I can get behind. Yeah. So tell me about 
that perfect workplace, if it ever existed, what does it look like in terms of supporting uh, the well-being of of their person? What what's in place in order to to have the ideal workplace? Yeah, and I do think it will never exist because right. I think we are people, and I think we will always have to balance the stresses around you know being competitive and getting things done with the perfect workplace. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think it's a balance of those things, but I do think it comes back to. Giving, I think at the end of the day, what people are really looking for and what they really want is setting direction. Let me know where the organization is going. Let me be part of something that has a purpose and is making a difference in the world. Let me, tell me what you want done. Let me figure out how to get it done mm-hmm. and be there to support and listen to me. And I do think every single person wants to be successful. Like I don't buy that anyone shows up at work and says, I don't want to be successful. Mm. I think we we might be in the wrong fit. We might, you know, there's lots of reasons people are not successful, but I think people want to generally do well. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can just set direction for them, if you can allow them to figure out how to get there and you can listen and be supportive, and if you can get things out of their way, uh, you can create a wonderful workplace. And I think it's pretty magical on what can happen when you do that. And finally, what would you say to somebody who is struggling uh, at work, who's listening to this and they're, and they're dreading going into work? Maybe they're on the subway listening to this on their way in. What, what would you say to them? There is so much amazing help and support out there. And it is so confidential. Just, you know, Go in onto your employer website, figure out if there is a program like an employee and family assistance program, or figure out if your spouse has one and you're the family member. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's not picking up the phone because I realize that first step isn't easy, but why not just have a little chat with a counselor? Mm-hmm. Why not just throw something out there and see how that conversation evolves? But to me, it really is about take that first step. And because Every single person that I know that goes through that is so glad they did, and they wish they had done it years before. Stephen Liptrap, President and CEO of Morneau Chappelle. Thanks for coming in and chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. There we go. There's my conversation with Stephen Liptrap, the president and CEO of Morneau Chappelle. Uh, I loved being able to really unpack what an EAP or an EFAP, an Employee and Family Assistance Program, is, uh, because I think it's an, uh, definitely an underutilized, sometimes not even heard of resource in many workplaces. I was shocked, as you probably heard, to hear that some of his clients, some of the companies who have EAPs, uh, access them at at 30, 40, 50 percent of their workforce every year. And I've almost never seen that. Many workplaces that I go to, it's sometimes, you know, five percent or 10 percent of their employees even know about the program, let alone use it. So I think it's important for people to know that that's a one of many resources uh, that are available to them and that you should use it. If you have access uh, either yourself directly or through a family member to an employee assistance program, ask your employer if you don't know. Uh, and if you do use it. It, it, whether you need psychological counseling, mental health help, 
or something else, you know, family assistance or or uh, financial assistance uh, in navigating your finances. I think it's a, an underutilized resource that you should use. Another underutilized resource, how's that for a segue, is Apple Podcasts, where you can go on there and find all our previous uh, episodes. So we have Stephen Liptrap up there, uh, as well as all of the, the past 50 or so uh, people that we've talked to on So-Called Normal so far, each in uh, providing a diverse and interesting uh, perspective on mental health. So head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show, scroll down to the bottom, leave us a star rating, leave us some comments if you like. Uh, you can share the show on your social networks and tag me too. I'm at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. And you can share the Apple Podcast link, or if you don't use Apple Podcasts, or if you don't have an iPhone, uh, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer, YouTube, everywhere else. Uh, and I'll usually share a lot of those links on my social media. So follow me on Twitter, Facebook, everywhere else, and at MarkHennick.com. I'd like to thank everybody who makes the show possible here at E1, Kimberly and Adrian and everybody, uh, and Dave, the ed- my editor, who makes uh, brings all this stuff together. Uh, I couldn't do it without you. So that's it. I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been So-Called Normal. Normal.